0: So I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up, because I've got some things to say.
1: Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group, they're rather stupid. That men are essential
2: for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, (sighs) unnecessary.
1: Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights. Dudes. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Put some skates on, be your own hero. Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings
2: of Miss Skimmer. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 81 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where a couple of us ladies get together and talk about how weird the world is and everything's going crazy. I'm Karen Peterson, joined by Kristen Lopez. Hello. And Lauren Humphreys brooks Hello. And there's so much weirdness, I'm not even quite sure where to start. But we're going to go ahead and start with the most recent weirdness that just happened about 11 hours ago. O.J. Simpson has decided that people don't talk about him enough anymore, and so he wants to join Twitter. And he posted a weird-ass video about, like, hey, I'm coming for you, which, considering his history, is a little bit scary. And it's also a little bit weird that he decided that the week of the anniversary of his ex-wife's murder and her friend's murder is the time to do it. But anyway, um, that's the thing that happened. I, As I said
0: to my roommate earlier, uh, Twitter is very clusterfucky today. I, Yeah, that was one of the first things that I saw when I woke up. I was like, oh, Jay Simpson is trending. And I was like, oh my God, why? And, and it's like he's trying to make a brand out of being like, oh, aren't I a charming, like... Potential murderer that I totally didn't do it, but everybody kind of knows that I did. You know, it's it's very strange. I I don't. I mean, it's kind. Of, Twitter is reaching the point where it's crossing over into just random surrealism. So it's kind of enjoyable
2: in that sense, but yeah, it's weird. Yeah, like if 2019 wasn't weird enough, I mean, O.J. Simpson on Twitter. That's that's a thing that's happening apparently. So. We'll see how that goes. I love that some people have already started trolling him though. I mean that's pretty that's pretty great.
0: I mean of course, but it's also giving him attention. That's one of the problems with it is that if you're quote tweeting the guy, he's getting attention, people are following him, people are paying attention to him. And it's like we don't want the, this man to have any clout. Like seriously.
2: I know. Like I mean I tweeted about it and I didn't even tag him, but even that I was like, Ugh, I'm adding to this mess, you know."
0: Yeah,
1: it's always a problem.
2: Yeah. Yep, Kristen, what did you, what did you think about the news that O.J. Simpson's on Twitter, and you can follow him?
1: Um, I didn't know about it until we just started talking about it right now. Um, but I think Lauren. <laughs> Good morning. Lauren said everything I would have said.
2: Where should we go from here? Uh, there was some more news. Franco Zifferelli died. Um, was that this morning or yesterday? I think it was reported this morning. Okay. He was he was ninety six. Yeah. Um, so I mean, he's so... old, dude. He's, he's a very old dude Frank Zef- Franco Zeffirelli is the director Of the 1968 Version of Romeo and Juliet The one that they showed us in high school And everyone mm-hmm. like laughs when she shows her boobs You know, because teenagers <laughs> are, are like that He's all, I mean, he did a lot of things too He also worked in didn't he work in Broadway? Or... He may
0: have. He, he also did the um, the version of Taming of the Shrew with uh, Elizabeth Taylor yes. and Richard Burton. I believe he did Tea with Mussolini. Uh, he was actually like quite a prolific director mm-hmm. all the way through the the 1960s, 70s to like even the contemporary period. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that the, this one hit me because his Shakespeare adaptations were among the first that I ever saw. Uh, and I actually really like his version of taming of the shrew which is such a problematic play no matter what but but because you've got um elizabeth taylor and richard burton there who are just like fucking wailing on each other i mean they like get really physically violent with one another (laughs) throughout that film and it even though you you still got all of these issues that are attached to that play, it it actually works with the two of them, uh, and it makes sense. And like their relationship feeds into the relationship of Caden Petruccio. It's um it's a really I, I encourage people to see it. I don't think a lot of people watch it anymore. Uh, but it's a really interesting adaptation of that play.
2: I actually remember watching that one in high school too. We watched that, and then we watched the um the moonlighting episode for things. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Used it, it's pretty funny But um, yeah, you're right, that was a really great adaptation um, I forgot he also did <laughs> He did Endless Love in 1981 I totally forgot Oh my god, him.
1: that movie's awful
2: <laughs> So, the movie is terrible But does that mean I get to thank him for Tom Cruise?
1: Uh, you need to thank him for making a truly atrocious <laughs> movie It just happens to star Tom Cruise <laughs>
2: It doesn't star Tom Cruise, but it was his first on-screen credit, so,
1: you know. I don't think he should thank him either, so.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that movie is This feeds
0: into one of the questions we asked on Twitter. How many Tom Cruise movies has Karen
2: seen? And the answer is all of them. I have seen all of the Tom Cruise movies most more than (laughs) once. Well, speaking of Tom Cruise... Some, um, more, yeah. <laughs> some more weirdness happened this week it's so weird to me with everything that's gone on that this was actually in the week that we're still in uh it feels like it was a month ago but um <laughs> last weekend i think it was sunday night maybe monday um justin bieber was apparently like watching something on tv about tom cruise and went yeah i could fight that guy so he we went on twitter and challenged tom cruise justin bieber challenge tom cruise to a fight in the octagon
1: children this is why you don't do drugs
2: (laughs) (laughs) my favorite things about this are tom cruise is 31 years older than justin bieber and everyone immediately jumped in to say dude he would kick your ass biebs like what are you thinking So, um, so it was a fun week for me watching everyone talk about how Tom Cruise would totally kick his ass, um, but this led to some very funny conversations about, like, who would you challenge to a fight, preferably that's 31 years older than you, because that's so damn ridiculous, and, uh, I'm trying to find some of the, some of the great responses we got, because, um, we threw that out there on our Twitter account. There were some like uh, Betty White.
0: Yeah, I think Betty White could take people though. I like really she think is, she could.
2: She is, she
0: is old, but she is wiry. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that someone ch- tried to challenge Dick Van Dyke, and then like someone else challenged Angela Lansbury. I challenged Al- Angela Lansbury just because <laughs> she knows what she did. But someone else also did, and then Dick Van Dyke actually responded to them and was just like, "I will defend her honor." You know, meet me by the piers. Like, holy shit. <laughs>
2: i love him yeah my (laughs) mom the other day because we were talking about this too and she was like i mean i guess dick van dyke but he would beat me (laughs) see and i said but he wouldn't beat you because he's he's respectful of women (laughs) (laughs) it looks like he was defending angela lansbury's honor you're just like oh wow i mean he's so great so yeah some of the other ones morgan freeman i had diane keaton and Sally Field, and I was like, uh, yeah, I don't like my chances. <laughs> so, um, Whoopi Goldberg, she would yeah, definitely, yeah. she would definitely hurt someone. I think one of the things, though, I mean, this all started with Justin Bieber and Kristen. I, I think your comments were right. Like, don't do drugs, kids, especially if you're going to tweet. But, um, but we just see all kinds of weirdness on Twitter these days, and I just sometimes I wonder why do we continue. It's it's one of it's one of those you know
0: reactions. I think we've talked about this in a, in a more serious vein before. Uh, it's one of those reactions of like having celebrities on Twitter and having you know quote regular people on Twitter. On the one hand, gives you a lot of can give you a lot of great access to people. It means that you actually get to talk to people that you admire. You can have responses. You can even have conversations with you know artists and, and actors. The other side of it. Is that it's basically a free for all, and if a celebrity particularly does their own tweeting, so they are, they haven't hired a, like an assistant or PR person to do their tweeting for them, um, if they actually are like a presence on Twitter, it can get really weird, and it can get particularly kind of disturbing at times i mean you've had those issues of like celebrities getting angry at fans or at critics and then like retweeting them Army hammer
1: doesn't tweet anymore lauren we don't have to bring him up
0: (laughs) (laughs) i actually until you shouted that i was like i completely forgotten that army hammer been on twitter and got himself into trouble but but yeah it's it's weird because you have this access to celebrities in a way and to, to, per, to just people in general in a kind of a, a distanced way and it can result in some really cool stuff but it can also result in some really weird and even really toxic stuff so you've got Justin Bieber who like went on to Twitter for some reason and challenged Tom Cruise to a cage fight <laughs> and it's like and and yeah and then of course everybody is like everybody lashes onto it and begins making fun of it and and you know begins laughing about it and this this one was kind of fun you know as a result because it was so ridiculous then you also have people like oj simpson who are famous for be for for killing two people like and 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 we're and we're we're going off on like him being on twitter and having a following and all that it's it's a very strange kind of amalgam of things
2: it is and you get a president that likes to just spew Gunk too. I, I don't even know. Yeah, I mean that's the, that's the other side
0: of it, and I I don't I don't think that Donald Trump would be president right now if, if it was if it wasn't for
2: Twitter. That's actually probably really true. Not every conversation with famous people can be Kristen rebooting dinosaurs with Raphael Casal.
1: I'm still very very happy about that. We both share a love for '90s ABC children's programming. <laughs>
2: Well, it makes sense because you're both 90s children. He's,
1: he's welcome to come on the podcast and talk about that anytime he wants. Open invitation. All right. So this week
2: we had some garbage people to discuss. Max Landis is back in the news because he is like herpes. He never goes away. My understanding of what happened this week, at least from from the way I was following it, was he hadn't actually done specifically anything new. What happened was that Whitney Moore went on Twitter. Was it on Twitter? I think it was on Twitter. It was on social media, and it got shared yeah, on, on Twitter right now. To say, I mean, she posted a, a a thing. It wasn't any, there weren't any specific accusations against him, but what she was saying was that she's been basically just not talking about what a terrible human being he is, and watching him have all this success, watching people praise him left and right, and she's just got to the point where she can't stay quiet about him anymore, She said, I never thought I would say anything publicly about the things Max Landis did to me because I believed that forgiveness was the correct way to heal. I even defended him for so long because I truly believed he was getting better and that the ways he tortured me was isolated to our relationship. I thought there was no point in sharing the horrific inhumane things he did to me because publicly condemning someone who is working on themselves is unproductive so basically she believed that he was trying to get better you know we all want to believe that people mean it when they say i'm going to do better i'm going to do better she has like i said she hasn't specifically said these are the things that he did but she's just we're ready to talk about it now which opened up the floodgates and so then a lot of people started talking about him again and, and questioning why he keeps getting all these deals why he keeps getting projects announced big profile high profile pictures with a lot of money behind them and the truth about him is out there this isn't like just these random you know occasional accusations that float around that make you wonder about someone like there is no there's no question here about some of the crap that he has done some of the terrible things he has done and yet he still keeps getting opportunities. Well,
1: but I think it's also important to point out that this came after, I, I want to say a couple months ago, there had been an anonymous Medium post that had, that had been put up on the, the website Medium that w- had talked about how the Hollywood Reporter is going to write this big Esquire X expose on Max Landis, and that they had shelved it because the anonymous woman along with several others were quote all unwilling to put our real names on the record for fear of harassment so i'm wondering if this is in the hopes of getting more of those women to let their names be used so that this this expose can go forward
0: the thing with maxillanus is that we you know i we've i think a lot of people said this we've known about it for years and it's been pretty much public knowledge that he's a horrible human being. I I do think one of the issues that we always come down to is that uh, in in the medium post, it was discussed what he actually did to her. Um, In this post, you know, the, the vagueness is difficult because you're like, okay, well, what does this mean? And then people, idiots, but people go off and are just like, oh, she's lying. You know, why won't she just say what's happened? You know, all of that stuff. And, You know, a a number of feminist critics have talked about this being like this need for the one of the issues that we've run into in the Me Too movement has been um, women having to basically open their wounds, sometimes of things that had happened years before, sometimes things that happened the day before. And just to have to open this up in order to try and not always succeed at convincing people that what happened to them was real. And that's, that's a really harsh thing to, to force women to do. But at the same time, it's become a necessity because these guys keep on getting away with it. They keep on being able to, it it keeps on just sliding off of them. And someone like Max Landis, um, you know, he's, he's not particularly talented. He's not particularly influential. He's not particularly good even at his job as in addition to being a, a total creep and asshole. Um, his really the only thing that he has going for them is that he's the son of john landis he's got clout and he's got protection and it's so harsh for these women to then have to try to to affect change without completely exposing themselves
1: i was gonna say and i have to laugh at at the people who still believe landis's name means anything because when was the last time papa landis had a hit but it, it must mean something, because otherwise, because seriously, there is no reason for Max
0: Landis to be anybody other than the fact that his father is John Landis. That's it.
2: Yeah, I mean, his film credits, at least as far as stuff that people have actually seen, is like Chronicle, which a few people saw, I guess. Victor Frankenstein, American Ultra, brights that gem of a Netflix catastrophe, um yeah so it's like max landis people keep saying oh no he's great he's great really i have yet to see any evidence of that
0: the only one of his films that i'm aware of that got any really good critical response was chronicle and uh, and like nothing else i mean so so that that's the thing it i i don't know the only thing that i could think of is that there's still this this I don't know how much power necessarily the Landis family, as it were, has behind the scenes in Hollywood. But there is certainly this still a still present love of John Landis um, in the film community of for what he has done in terms of contributions to cinema really in the 1980s. I mean, that's pretty much late 70s and into the 80s. That was pretty much the last time he had anything that was really that was really interesting. But he's still. A number of his films are still very iconic. He's still a very iconic figure. It's just—it just seems to be another example of a very privileged kid who's being protected by the power of his family um, and continues to be protected by them. And you know, who knows how long this is going to take? Hopefully, this will just mean that eventually they're they're just going to leave. They're going to leave Max Landis behind. You know, whether or not this uh, this is never going to result in any criminal charges or anything like that. But hopefully, eventually, he will just stop getting hired
2: i think that's eventually what will happen especially if like if he's if he's still doing this stuff it's not these are not accusations that are in the distant past like he's still doing things and i think there's gonna come a point and i think there's gonna come a point with a lot of these guys that eventually they're just not worth the hassle of working
1: well his daddy did murder three people so you know I have no faith in the system. <laughs> and I don't want anybody to tweet me, oh, he got acquitted. So did OJ. Okay?
2: system is definitely not always going to convict the wrong. So also in Garbage People, uh, this week, so Cuba Gooding Jr. was accused of, of groping a woman in a bar in, I think it was in New York. And this was like a week or two ago that this came out that she had accused him well, he actually is being charged, and he showed up to to jail and turned himself in uh, the other day. So he was booked on charges of misdemeanor forcible touching and sexual abuse in the third degree for groping a woman at a bar. Uh, the maximum penalty if he is convicted is a is a year in jail. So uh, let's see, as a celebrity, carry the one. He will do ten minutes, maybe. <laughs> yeah, not not even close. <laughs> so yeah basically um i mean he he turned himself in so he's this is going forward they're actually taking it seriously i'm guessing what will happen is he'll plead and and uh end up doing like a suspended sentence or something like that but basically what happened oh it was his so there's surveillance footage and it shows him and his girlfriend approaching a woman and sitting down next to her, and then he reaches over to touch her thigh and then touches her breast. Apparently, that is on
1: surveillance camera or on the camera, so
2: we know how uh, how cameras help people get convicted of stuff all the time. I, I was I was gonna say
1: um, there's no audio, so if the R Kelly rules apply, then he's he's good. He'll he'll, he'll go free. Well,
0: and I think that he's he's denied that anything inappropriate happens. So so he's not he's not even saying yeah I totally did it um I'm sorry which I would actually respect you know I I am at the point <laughs> with these guys that I'm like you know what if you've done particularly something like this that is gross and disturbing and wrong but is not uh, to the extent of rape but I would actually respect this guy being like I did some I did I did it I'm wrong I was wrong I'm really sorry to the person that I hurt um, that would, you know, at least show some degree of remorse and some degree of, like, you know, I, I shouldn't have done that. You know, some, God, some exception of being, like, you know, yes, I was a bad person and I'm going to try not to be a bad person anymore.
1: It's really weird that, like, his girlfriend was right there. I I mean, you don't know what type of relationship <laughs> they have, so... No, I know,
2: but it's like, is she just not saying anything or are they just not report like I want to know what her version of the events are you know I don't see anything I haven't come across anything where they even talk to her so it's super weird I don't know anyway um let's see oh yeah let's talk about midsummer. I don't know how to transition from real life horror to movie horror but uh <laughs> we'll just do it that way Midsummer is coming out soon, and that's the Ari Aster film follow up to Hereditary, which broke Twitter um, with a bunch of film bros who just thought it was the second coming of horror movies. And um, now he's coming back with Midsummer, which uh, we all, I think, agree that the trailer looks a hell of a lot like The Wicker Man from, you know, 1973. But um, Jordan Peele saw the movie and says it's unlike anything that's ever existed in the history of the world. I have questions.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to hear. I want to hear what Kristen thinks first I before too. I go, <laughs> go off on it.
1: As as somebody who thought Hereditary was terrifying when it came out, and I still do, um, I'm excited to see this. I I know it looks like The Wicker Man. I'm not. Saying that it doesn't look like the Wicker Man. Um, but at the same time, I still am very excited to see what he's going to do. So I'm, I'm ready. I, I actually think I go see it next Thursday, I think. I, I see it relatively soon.
2: Okay, but what do you think about about Jordan Peele saying this is unlike any movie that's ever...
1: It's what every celebrity director or, or really what any critic that goes to a film festival does, which is create false hype. I mean, I don't think that it's the scariest thing that's ever going to come out, but I think that, as we've seen, directors love to support directors that remind them of them, and so I think he wants to help a friend out by creating some some hype for it.
0: I've got so many mixed feelings about everything. I mean, I, at the end of the day, I am going to go see *Midsummer* because I'm sort of interested just to see what it is and what it winds up looking like. And, you know, we we should always be careful about judging things solely based upon their trailers uh, because they're also trying to promote a particular concept of the film. I mean, we, we've talked about this. One of the issues that I had with Hereditary um, was that it was... Well it did some very unique things and I think it deserved praise for the unique things that it did. Ultimately to me it was incredibly derivative. And not in not in a like, you know, yes, all film and particularly horror film uses elements of the films that have come before it. And it's kind of hard to reach a point where you're making something completely unique and that that's not going to happen. But one of the issues that I had with hereditary is that there were whole sections and even whole shots that lifted images and concepts and concerns and themes from what I consider to be much better horror films. Uh, one of the major ones was Rosemary's baby, which, you know, is, is, is in itself a very unique horror film and is, is still an iconic horror film. Um, and at, by the time I got to the end of Hereditary, I was like, well, I feel like a lot of the horror that I just watched, I've seen before, and I've seen it done better, and I've seen it done with more interest in the humanity of the characters, and... Uh, and so that's one of the things that concerns me then turning around to Midsummer is that, you know, almost immediately when the first trailer came out, everyone was like, oh, it looks like The Wicker Man. It's like, okay, so we have a director who's already made a fairly derivative horror film, making another film that looks and is presented as very similar to another iconic horror film. And that immediately just raises questions for me. Uh, whether or not Midsummer ultimately does that whether or not you know it ultimately it you know is it going to change the game in horror no i have a feeling that it isn't i don't know and i will wait to see the film to you know make that judgment but i don't hold this a great deal of hope about it um in terms of its ability to to shift the needle in any sense uh wicker and again Wickerman. one of the things that works with Wickerman is that the particularly the first time that you see it and if you don't know anything about it three quarters of the film doesn't look like a horror film and the first time that i saw it all i knew about it was that it was a very iconic horror movie and i'm sitting there and it's you know it's whatever nearly a two-hour film and i'm sitting there going like when does the horror happen like, it's kind of creepy, it's kind of weird, but it's it's sort of nice and it builds this really interesting society and these interesting relationships and everything. And then the horror actually happens and it's shocking. And it's still shocking. It's it's shocking 30, 40, 50 years on. One of the issues that I'm having with Midsummer is that I'm already like, okay, I kind of know where the horror is going to be. Do I know exactly what's going to happen? No, but I know what it is going to give me, what's, what it's going to try to present to me. and And I don't, I, that That's not important to me in a, in a horror film I don't really want to sit there going like Oh I want to be grossed out, I want to be horrified No, I want you to give me something interesting It can be scary But it has to be interesting
2: Yeah, I think this is one of the things that we were talking about In Slack was the difference Between, so Like Ari Aster with Hereditary People just immediately jumped in on like Oh he's the next great horror di- Director and I didn't feel that way at all. I actually felt very empty when I watched Hereditary. I didn't feel scared by it at all. Um, and like you said, I felt like everything in it was... Well, maybe not everything, but a lot of the things in it were things that I had seen in other movies and had seen done just as well or better. And I didn't see anything about Ari Aster that really excited me to see like what he does next. I think *Midsummer* looks it looks like it could be a very um, pretty in a lot of ways horror movie, which is kind of weird, but um, I like Florence Pugh. I think she's a good actress, and so I'm, I'm intrigued by it, but it's just this idea that Ari Aster is somehow making stuff that no one's ever made before. It's just so weird to me, and it's like, and it's coming from people who have seen all these other horror movies, too. It's not like People who have no experience with horror coming in and saying, "Oh no, this is this is exciting and new," because these guys know better. Um, one of the things that particularly caught my attention was with Jordan Peele being the one talking about it, because, and this is one of the conver- one of the parts of the conversation we were having was just with *Hereditary*. There's no other emotion besides, like, just depression. <laughs> it's just such a such a depressing film. It's so bleak. There's no humor in it at all. That's one of the things that you need with horror is you need something to break that up and something to give it more depth and dimension. And with Hereditary, you didn't get that. And, um, and so then that led me to thinking about Jordan Peele and the difference between Get Out and Us and how Get Out was very successful, partly because it used humor so much to accentuate the horror and to give you a little bit of a break from it. And to make you just question what's really going on. And then you have us, which has some really funny stuff in the beginning. But once it gets to kind of the point, or once it gets toward the point that it's making, it's, it's in a lot of ways, is like hereditary, where it's just is very one-dimensional emotionally. And so it's less successful than Get Out was. So I just, I think that I don't, I don't like, if this is the direction that horror is going, I don't like it. I, would, I need facets emotionally in order to really be able to engage with
1: it. I gotta disagree with the, the way that you approach Hereditary. Because I, I see, I don't see it as depressing. I see it as anxiety inducing. And I think a, that there is some subtle humor. That dinner table scene, specifically in Hereditary, my mom and I laugh at that. Mostly because we've had that argument and we've had those moments where like when Tony Collette is talking about that face on his face, like that that line makes us laugh because we've had that argument where you don't even know how to form a good insult. And it's again, it's not a laugh out loud movie, but I do think there are moments that are relatable in the sense of how families approach each other. Um, but for me, the tone is always anxious. And just waiting for. I, I was. I didn't end the movie dep- depressed per se, but I did feel like in a heightened state of awareness. Um. And and that's just how I took it. Um. But I do think that. Nesse- for me, the scariest movies are the ones that just induce that fear of like like it. It. I think it left me in a similar sense of like always being nervous about what's behind me. Um. And I think this might be incredibly weird, but like it and hereditary to me induced the same level of terror just in different ways. Um, So I don't know. That's just, that's just how I approach the film.
0: Well, and I I think that there are different ways to approach these films and I, but, but it's interesting that you bring up it, which does have a lot of humor in it. Right. Right. And, and it does have light moments. It does have moments of the kids just playing. Or, you know or facing you know the real life terrors of the bullies um, and and it has it has that balance I, I do agree with with Karen that I think that hereditary is imbalanced because it starts out very low uh, just in terms of the tone of the film and it and rather than it doesn't have much place to go because it starts out so depressive or so anxious or, or you know whatever kind of words i i think i agree with karen that it, that it 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 is a depressive film um and and it does summon anxiety he i i absolutely agree that he's good at creating tension he's good at creating you waiting for that next moment of horror and actually one of the strengths i think of it is that there is such a long section of that film where nothing supernatural particularly happens uh, it's just about building kind of the family relationships and the reaction, particularly to grief. Uh, and, and that's some of the most powerful sections of the film, I think, are definitely a part of that. But the, the problem is, because it starts so low, it doesn't have much place else to go with it. So by the time you get to the end, I was actually almost relieved by the end of the film. I was just like, oh, thank God, everyone's dead Oh my god, like these people really just needed to die. Like that that was that sense and I don't think that that's sustainable in horror that isn't generally the kind of horror that I like. We we were talking about on the Slack, the the sort of horror that you go back to and one of the things all of the great horror films for me are films that I can watch multiple times knowing the twists, knowing the, the jump scares, knowing the moments that I'm going to be frightened and still enjoy them and still find value in them. And that's true for movies like Halloween. That's true for movies like Get Out, uh, which I can definitely go back to and watch numerous times and find a great deal of pleasure in watching them. Hereditary, I had no pleasure in. And I do think that horror needs some kind of pleasure. Sometimes it's it's just that release of tension, when you get those films that build it up and build it up and then it just releases it. Um, it is about humor. I mean, all most of the films that we've mentioned have some kind of humor in them, even if it's just nervous laughter. Uh, but those moments of lightness that actually create more darkness, um, that you're not really relieved at the end of the film when everyone has died or when most of the people have died because it's just been such a slog, but you're, you're actually still leaving the theater with that feeling of of fear and of these people survived, but you know, the killer is still out there kind of thing or the ghost is still in the house. And that's the best kind of horror to me. And that's something that hereditary doesn't have. Uh, in, in in any particularly equal measure, and I think that that makes it a weaker film than... And, and that's what I think makes it not as iconic and not ha- having the potential to be as iconic as similar films like, even like It, which I think is going to be an iconic film, or Rosemary's Baby or Halloween or even Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which has a sort of delirious humor to it um, it, and is, at the same time, a very unpleasant
1: film. But At the same time, just- does every horror film have... I know that... I think that what the problem I see is, is that the hype train and what Peel's doing is attempting to make it this quote-unquote iconic feature. Does every yeah. horror film... I think the problem is, is is every horror film setting out to be iconic and do they necessarily have to be? I think that every horror... I mean, every horror film wants to be
0: successful. I think that that's what it's really coming down to. You know, you want, you want to scare people and... And I, I have, I mean, I don't know, I can't speak for, for every filmmaker or anything like that. I think that most filmmakers want to make a film that affects people in some way. And that, get, and that produces a, a good response. You know, and there can be an argument about, you know, what is good horror and what is bad horror. And people argue about it. And different horror does different things. Um, I do think that the most successful horror films are ones that are not just dwelling in darkness consistently that actually have moments of lightness, moments of humor, you know, human feeling. I mean, that was an issue that I had with Hereditary is that I didn't feel much by the end of it. I was just like, these are not people anymore. They're just like, they're, they're just things almost. And, you know, maybe that's what he was going for. But again, it's not pleasurable. So it's not something that I want to go back to. It's not something that I particularly want to... Um, elevate in any way as as a critic or as a viewer.
2: Warren and I definitely see eye to eye on this one. And but I also recognize that humor is very or horror, sorry. Humor too, but horror is very subjective and what scares me doesn't scare you and vice versa. So I guess for anybody that's listening to this, if 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 there's something about Hereditary that makes it a sustainable movie for you that you keep wanting to go back to, besides Tony Collette's performance, please. Um, let us know. Go on Twitter and, and just, just tell us, because I'm really curious, what is it about Hereditary that works so well for you? Can,
1: can I throw out one suggestion? Yes. Um, for me, I think what Aria Astor does well with that movie is playing on the visceral, and by that I'm going to go with sound effects. For me, I am one of those, maybe because I've had so many injuries before in my life the sound effects in that movie. Whether that be, and I don't want to spoil things, but a certain person's head hitting something or somebody (laughs) somebody sawing something. Like that part of the movie is what stuck with me more than anything else. Just the, the way he employs very visceral elements of sound like, I don't sit down to watch Hereditary, but if it's on, I'd probably watch it again. And I would still be, I, I think that he plays on squeamishness in a way that, you know, there's something about seeing, like, buckets of blood or or something that you're just, I, for me, I'm just kind of like, eh, whatever, special effects. I know how movies are made, but when you're playing on, on like, tangible things like sound um it, it's a different reaction so for me that's what hereditary like does so well for me
0: yeah i think that's totally fair and i actually agree with you i think that some of the best the scariest moments in that film are what we hear and don't see um and actually you know it's interesting that you mentioned the the head loss because uh, the the part that actually Got me in the film, and I, th- I think I think it's okay to talk about spoilers, probably because it's been out.
2: I was going to say, yeah, I mean, it's been out. So. Yeah, I can't <laughs> imagine anybody listening to this that cares about Hereditary has not already seen it.
1: Yeah, if you don't want to know, fast forward like five minutes. There you go. You've been warned. Spoil, Lauren.
2: <laughs> well, so the moment, like when the fact,
0: the whole sequence where he drives home and gets out of the car and doesn't wake anyone up and goes to bed, and lies down in bed, and I think that... I would have to actually watch the scene again, which I don't particularly want to do, but um, he, I think that the camera stays on him in the morning, lying in bed. It does, yeah. And hearing his parents get up and move around, and then hearing his mother scream. And that is one of the most haunting sections, I think, of the film to me. And it is horrible. And And, you know, again, my problem is that I because the rest of the film is so heavy, I can't bring myself to go back to it because it is a very powerful sequence. But I also never want to see it again. Um, and I and I don't want to see the rest of the film that surrounds it. I, I do think that there are other criticisms to be made of Hereditary beyond just whether or not it's a successful horror film, just in terms of its treatment of the female characters, uh, its treatment of disability, its treatment of... You know, it's use of women in terms of horror and not just the Tony Collette character, but the sister and, and the grandmother and kind of the whole mythos that the film develops. I think that it it fails in places that it might have done something really interesting that other films had done. Um, and it kind of falls into a not quite misogynist, but beginning to get there kind of category of horror that does begin to make me uncomfortable.
2: I will add that there are definitely things about it that are very, very well done. It's not a terrible movie. I didn't, I didn't dislike Hereditary. I just, it just didn't work for me the way it worked for a lot of other people. One well, thing that that comes back to the
0: the discussion that we had about hype, about the fact that, like, as you were saying, Kristen, that it's so, like, every does every film really need to be iconic? Does it really have to be the best thing ever? And one of the issues that that I think a lot of us had with with when hereditary came out and that we're now having with midsummer is that it's it's elevating these films as being like it is the scariest movie ever made it's like no there's no such thing as the scariest movie ever made because when you say you know what scares me is not going to scare someone else and it's going to affect us in different ways so it's hard to then go into a film where you've been constantly told, oh, this is the scariest thing you're ever going to see in your life, and then sit there and go like, well, it didn't scare me that much, or, you know, it it doesn't work on different levels. So we we do have to pull back on the hype, I think, and and this is particularly a problem that critics have and that horror, horror fans have of treating every film as though it changes the whole structure of the genre
2: hyperbole really needs to stop when it especially when it comes to film critics like just just write what you feel about it but don't don't be don't exaggerate don't be hyperbolic and film critics should know better people like jordan peele should know better uh but yeah so all right well we will move on now we got some questions this week some fun questions too uh this one's from At K.H. Derek, if you could unsee one film, wipe it entirely from your memory, what would it be? I actually have a letterboxed list that is called list of films I'll have erased from my memory whenever they finally invent the procedure from Eternal Sunshine. (laughs) Um, Some of the movies on that. Escape from Tomorrow. Did you guys ever see that one? No, I know of it, though. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's the movie that was secretly filmed at Disney World. It is so bad. It's probably my least favorite movie I have ever seen in my life. So I'd say that one. Jack and Jill, where Adam Sandler plays twins. It's really terrible. Gringo, with um, David Oyelowo and uh, Charlize Theron. Nash, Nash Edgerton directed it. His brother, Joel, is in it too. So that one's really bad. Um, The Beach Bum is probably my most recent addition.
1: What do you guys have? Um, I would say uh, Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven. I would love to never have to (laughs) think that I sat through that two and a half hour homemade movie. It's fucking atrocious. And it actually almost seeks to undo how much I love the first Showgirls. So yeah, Um, there's no other movie that I would ever consider wiping from my brain other than that one.
0: Uh, I was having difficulty thinking about this, because they're the films that I really hated, but kind of resulted in, in some really interesting conversations. One of them is Blade Runner 2049, which I still fucking hate so much. But... I got to talk about it a lot and I had some really interesting conversations as a result and, and I think wrote some interesting stuff about it. So on the one hand, I'm like, oh, I really wish I hadn't seen that movie. But on the other hand, I'm like, eh, but I, I, I got something out of it. One of the films, and this is, this is going to be odd because I actually think it's one of his best films, but I kind of wish I hadn't seen it and it has continued to haunt me, I think, pretty much ever since I saw it when I was way too young for it, is Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy uh which is a very good very disturbing film and i was i think i was 13 when i saw it and it was not a film i should have seen at the age of 13 and i kind of wish i i don't necessarily wish that i could wipe it from my memory i wish i could wipe it from my memory from that time and bring it forward a little bit. So be a little bit older when I actually saw it. Because when I saw it, I did not really realize what the, the subject was. And I did not realize how dark it was going to be. Um, and it was a, it was at a point where I, I loved Hitchcock. I you know pretty had pretty much seen everything else that he had done. So it was kind of natural to, to watch it. And I mean, it was to the point where my parents actually had to take the videotape and put it in the basement. Because just seeing the cover of it bothered me so much. Um, fantastic film wish I had not seen it at the age of 13 those are the two I think
2: we'd like to know all yours too so tweet us and let us know Uh, the next question came from Merlin at scripted Merlin what are your favorite musicals, stage and or film
1: um so I always say spring awakening uh the last five years oh gosh those are the stage things at least I know I probably have far more that I could think of if I had more time Um, oh, Hamilton, obviously. Um, we're talking movies. I always go singing in the rain. Uh, I like On an Island with You. The Esther Williams musicals, I I enjoy a lot. Um, Meet Me in St. Louis. Those are the biggies.
0: Uh, in terms of movies, um, I, I mean, I love pretty much all of the Astaire and Rogers films. My favorite is The Gay Divorcee, um, which just because it's actually very good comedy in addition to being a very good musical. And I just like that period of their collaboration together. They're, they're great. I really like guys and dolls. Uh, I think it's loads of fun and <laughs> the movie or the play, No, the movie. Okay. I mean, okay. I, I've actually seen the play. I, I have seen the play, but, um, I love, I actually love the dancing in guys and dolls. The, uh, it's Michael Kidd choreography and and I, I i love the weirdness of casting
1: marlon brando in a musical brando trying to sing and dance is a thing of beauty
0: and it's just like it's fun and it's strange and i i will sit down and watch it and some of it is also just the supporting cast like the um the the guys who play the guys are just great and I like Gene Simmons it's one of those films that in addition to it being a musical again I like the comedy in it and I like the story uh so yeah those are the two that I sort of thought of almost immediately of course I, I love Hamilton um I think that we all love Hamilton I did just see Hades Town, which is a very good stage musical um yeah I think that those are the
2: ones that I would go for I do not love Hamilton because I've not seen Hamilton but my favorite stage musical is Wicked. I love it. I've seen it five or six times now, I think. Um, that's the one I've seen on stage the most, but uh, I also... I mean, I, I, my, my stage experience is very limited just because I've only ever gotten to see the stuff that tours, and there are probably so many things that go on Broadway that never make it this way, or at least not in a cost-effective way, so you know it's like I don't I don't just don't get those experiences but um but I love movie musicals there's so many my very favorite is The Sound of Music my mom and I used to watch that all the time I know every note um I still can't watch that movie without singing along I love Moulin Rouge i love then there are some that are like i don't know if it's technically a musical or not like sing street i really liked that's that's a musical yeah that's that's a musical okay
1: yeah it's like it's like when people ask me if lou and davis is a musical yeah it is it
2: is yeah all right so yeah i love sing street i think that one's really good so yeah i i love musicals i pretty much if there's a movie musical i will give it a try i don't always love all, all of them but I'll at least check it out. So that's, that's definitely a, a big thing for me. I just, I love movie music. It's just, I love it. It's my favorite thing. So yeah, good question. Thank you. And then Ryan McDermott, at Ryan McDermott asked, in honor of a new Men in Black film, what are some of your favorite makeup effects in?
0: I don't know, man. I was trying to think about this. I am a horrible human being and like fashion, I do not pay that close attention to the makeup in films. Um, I usually only notice it, I get, which I guess is, it means they're doing their job. Because I usually only notice it when it's really bad. Uh, you know, I'll give I'll give a shout out to Suspiria and the makeup that they did on Tilda Swinton. That was actually very good and very convincing. Um, but that's really the only one that I can think of off the top of my
1: head. Um, I hate to throw out a John Landis movie, but American Werewolf in London has has some really great makeup effects. Um, I also say The Witches. Uh, if anybody's seen that movie, um, what they do to Angelica Houston's character in that film is brilliant. Um, and I also really enjoy the vampire effects in From Death Till Dawn. So those are the three.
0: The Witches also <laughs> scarred me as a child.
1: Oh, The Witches is brilliant.
0: <laughs> it is, but it scarred me as a child. Yet again, movies that Lauren should not have seen when she was young.
1: I maintain that Angelica houston that's a documentary. So I both <laughs> love her and I'm deathly afraid
2: of her. That's fair. Um, I loved basically anything that um, Doug Jones has had a part in. He, it's had great makeup. Um, yeah. Beetlejuice, I think, is really fun. Um, oh, Dick Tracy. That was one that had really fun makeup. The movie itself is not great, but the makeup is really fun. Like, some of the characters, because it's all, it's all prosthetics and makeup. It's not, this was in the early 90s, so it wasn't CGI, so... It's like, there are people in that movie that are completely unrecognizable. And it's awesome. I love it. Like, I did not know for the longest time that Dustin Hoffman was Mumbles, you know? (laughs) It's like, you just don't see him in it. And then when you see it, you finally can. But yeah, so that one's a good one, too. So, all right. Fun stuff. All right. So this week, as far as trailers go, we had a big one with Dr. Sleep. Did you guys watch the trailer? Dr. Sleep is a basically a sequel to the shining stephen king wrote the book it came out in 2013 i believe and it is about danny torrens all grown up and so the movie will star ewan mcgregor as danny Torrance, and um rebecca ferguson is in it she plays the villain which i think is gonna be really fun so i don't know what did you guys think of the trailer what do you know of the story so far? Anyway, has anybody read the book?
0: I haven't read the book. I read I read The Shining, and I know I know about Doctor Sleep. Um, one of the things that interested me about the trailer is that it integrated a lot of stuff directly from Kubrick's The Shining, which is bold, a very bold thing to do uh, for a filmmaker to actually make use of images from, again, you know, we're talking about iconic horror films, uh, one of the most iconic horror films ever made. Um, I, as someone who is not a huge fan of Stephen King's writing, but actually generally enjoys adaptations of his work, I am intrigued. So we'll, we'll see. I have mixed feelings with Mike Flanagan as a director. Um, I was not a fan of what he did to Hill House Um, but I have, like, some of his other horror films. So, well, for me, it's it's a kind of wait-and-see movie.
1: Yeah, um, all I know about the book is that my mom read it and said it was terrible. So that doesn't exactly bode well for me. Um, I have have issues with King wanting to go back to the well. Um, and watching the trailer for this, and, and having read the plot synopsis of the book, I was like, yeah, this sounds like a Stephen King thing that he would write in 2019 where it's just got like, I'm actually fascinated by what Flanagan's going to keep because the plot line of the novel sounds incredibly convoluted and dumb. So who knows? Um, Like Lauren said, I enjoy Hush, um, his film, but uh, Hill House was a little too This Is Us for my taste. So I, I don't know. I mean, Ewan McGregor's immortal. So, that'll be interesting to see. Uh, And Rebecca Ferguson, it'll be great to watch her in a role where she can do something. (laughs) Recreating uh, a movie that I would say is iconic and is incredibly scary. Um, Here's my problem, okay? I read the plot synopsis to the book. Which, if you've seen the movie, the book is very different than the movie. So, like already i was reading the plot synopsis for dr sleep and they were talking about a character that is not alive in the original film um and so i was just kind of like oh yeah this is the reminder that the 1980s version was a little racist um and then you have the fact in the trailer that the the girl the little girl is african-american and i was just like mm, we really want to remind people that stephen king really likes that whole mystical negro trope like I don't know. I was very conflicted in a two-minute trailer, um, or however long this was. So, I I think I need to see a bit more, like the entire movie. I don't know if I need to see the entire movie. No. I... <laughs>
0: usually, you want to see the entire movie. You know, we're talking a lot about trailers right now, and just like we do, usually want to see the entire movie, but.
2: But also trailers can give you a sense of, of what you want to experience I guess yeah so for me I did read Doctor. Sleep I've read Do- I've read The Shining I actually really liked the book um, and I like the movie I, I think they're both good. I understand what the criticisms are that you know some of the things that are changed in in the movie are unnecessary but um, but I like them both for different reasons. Doctor Sleep. I enjoyed the book, but it's weird as hell. And I knew that they were going to... Well, once I heard they were going to adapt it, I was just like, I don't know how they're going to do that because there is some stuff in there that I just don't see how it would translate to the screen. Not that it can't be done, but I just... I couldn't picture it. But um, when I heard Mike Flanagan was on board, I thought, okay, all right. I, I I'm a little more interested now because I thought Hush was really good. I, I actually liked the haunting of hill house i liked what he did with it it's very different from the book but again they're they both exist for different reasons and they accomplish different things and and so i like both of them um so i i don't know i'm very intrigued i think it's going to be interesting watching the trailer it for dr sleep it made me think okay so some of the stuff that just probably wouldn't work for the movie is not going to happen and so they're going in a slightly different direction so i'm excited i think it looks good
0: well, I, I am interested in whether or not it's going to wind up being a sequel to The Shining in the sense of it's a sequel to the Kubrick film or if it's going to be a sequel to The Shining the book, so an adaptation of Dr. Sleep or how it's going to navigate that, if it's going to navigate that.
2: Well, it, yeah, that's the thing is because if it's, if it's a sequel to the movie more than a sequel to the book, then... I mean, like what Kristen was alluding to, there's a character that dies in the movie yeah. that did not die in the book that it ends up having a very significant impact on Danny Torrance's life. And so that's where it's like, I really hope that they kind of rewrite history a little bit and let that person still live. But I don't know. We'll see. Um, and we will see in, what is it? Uh, November 8th is when it comes out. Did anybody see anything this week that you'd like to chat about for a minute? We didn't really have any major stuff to review. I did see Men in Black International. I think I might be the only one that did.
1: I, I for forewent the screening and saw Rocket Man again, so I feel like that was money well spent. That's not
2: a bad choice.
1: It, it was not. The old people that were in front of us, uh, I told you, fell asleep, and when they did woke up, uh, wake up, they said that it was, quote-unquote, a little too gay. Um, But my mom and I have (laughs) a lot of fun.
0: A movie about Elton John is too gay.
1: It's too gay. Um, I will say that watching that certainly helped prep me for watching the Nicholas Windy Refn show that came out this week, uh, Too Old to Die Young, which is on Amazon. Um, I recommend not watching it because it's literally the worst thing to have. I would love to have that scrubbed from my memory that I watched one (laughs) whole episode how Re- Refn must think that this is obviously a proof of insanity. If you can get through all 13 episodes or 13 hours, excuse me, 10 episodes, um, then you are obviously insane or a real sadist. Um, that's the only thing I can think of. Um, and is, that's coming from somebody that loves neon demon. Um, but this movie is just the most misogynist, disturbing, bullshit that i've i've watched in a long time i don't think you could you could literally put all my boys in this in this one thing and i'd still be like this is hot fucking garbage um <laughs> so it's it's literally atrocious <laughs>
2: lauren what'd you see this
1: week
0: <laughs> I, I mean i actually i did not unfortunately get out to the movie theater to see anything new there is a film that's coming out i think um june 18th that is fun and it's a movie called ghost light it's set in. It's basically the story is about a Shakespearean acting troupe uh, who are about to put on a production of Macbeth in a isolated sort of little Massachusetts community, um, and they, of course, it's it's all about theatrical superstitions. And of course, you're not you're not supposed to say the name of the play when you are in the theater because it's bad luck and you have to go through all of these different things in order to undo the curse and basically what happens is the um the the actor who's playing banquo who is an understudy also to the actor who plays macbeth who is played by carrie elwis by the way and is and he's having the time of his life he's having an absolutely great time doing this um but so the actor who's playing banquo is having an affair with the lead actor's wife and the two of them begin shouting Macbeth in the theater, kind of challenging the curse. And naturally this is a horror comedy and they, uh, they incur the curse of Macbeth and it's, it's fun. It's light. It's entertainingly done. You know, you've got some actually really great actors like Carrie Elvis Carol Kane is in it um, overacting her little heart out. She's having a, an awesome time doing it. And it actually is a lot of fun Um You know, not, not like, not something that you're going to write home about. But, you know, when it comes to VOD, uh, June 18th, I I would just recommend checking it out. It's, it's, particularly the final act is just fabulous.
2: Uh, So, yeah, like I mentioned, I did see Men in Black International this week. And Chris Hemsworth is very beautiful. And uh, so is Tessa Thompson. The movie itself is, I thought it was fine, but maybe it's because I went in with my expectations, like, below the floor because people said it was so terrible i didn't think it was actually that bad i i didn't think it's definitely not as funny as the other movies and
1: but i i also a lot of it i'm assuming by the other movies you mean
2: one i thought two was funny as well
1: oh my gosh two is not good karen peterson i didn't
2: say good i said funny there's a difference Um, but the thing is that this movie I didn't think was trying to be funny like those. It understands that Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson are not Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith and it doesn't try to make them them, you know? So, uh, I, I think that, I mean, there are definitely some things that don't work, but overall I thought, I thought it was fine. Um, there are also some things that I thought were (laughs) really funny and, and enjoyable. Like Chris Hemsworth kind of, uh, you know, we talk about his awesome dumb blonde secretary in Ghostbusters. And in this, he's definitely supposed to be, like, the best agent in MIB, at least in the London branch. And um, But he does some things that are, like, typical of female spies in the genre where he has to like sleep with someone to get information and stuff like that so i liked the. Film. are you serious with that. yes <laughs> yes and it's funny and it's like good yes thank you so oh uh,
0: yet again chris hasworth please remake all of marilyn monroe's films
1: yes please. yes exactly karen i need to ask you the important question because i told you this has been my thing Apparently 2019 is the year of this. So um, every man doesn't own buttons on their shirts anymore. And everything starts at like mid-navel. So just how low are Chris Hemsworth's shirts buttoned in this movie? This is what the people want to know.
2: No, most of them are buttoned up pretty high. There's one part where he's trying to look casual. So he unbuttons a couple of buttons. And then Tessa goes back and is like, "Um, let's just fix this. And she, you know, closes one or two of them. So, Damn it. I think he's only shirtless once. That's a travesty. But he has this one blue linen shirt that just hangs so perfectly on him. And-
1: <laughs> Wait, are we talking like Army Hammer, call me by your name, good hanging shirt? Better. Oh, that's, that's, that's ludicrous, Karen. You cannot be throw <laughs> that out there.
2: Sorry, I'm always going to think Hemsworth's better than Hammer, so sorry. People underestimate what we actually
0: want from a Men in Black movie starring Chris Hemsworth. Exactly. It's like, no, you don't understand, like... This
1: is all we need, ladies. So on Kristen's thirst rankings, it doesn't sound like it's gonna unseat Rocket Man, but I might, I might give it a try now. Might give it a try. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you for, for answering my in-depth analysis, Karen. No problem. <laughs> I'm
2: here for the hard, the hard stuff, you know. All right, so that's gonna finish things out for, for this week, I think. Um, so there's lots of ways that you can follow us and and be part of of what we do when we're not here. You can follow us on Twitter, at Citizen Dame Pod, and like I said before, you can... Anything that we've talked about, if you want to comment on it, throw it out there. We, we love we love comments, as long as they're nice and not mean. Um, and they can be mean, too, as long as they're not...
1: And if you're on Twitter, enter our contest.
2: We are having a What's in the Bag contest. Go on Twitter, go on our Citizen Dame Pod account, look at the picture, guess what's in the bag, you'll be entered to win what is in the bag. So... Uh, we also have Instagram at citizen dame Pod. You can find us on Facebook once in a while. We go there still. Facebook.com slash citizendame. You can email us, citizendamepod at gmail.com. We have our official website, citizendamepod.com, and there we have um, well we'll be getting back into the swing of our citizen dame five. We have th- Thirst Traps. We have um, Feminist Fridays. Are we still doing that? I don't know. Uh, we have lots of stuff coming your way. We have some reviews that are coming up. So lots of, of fun stuff over on the website. If you'd like to support us with your dollars, we like that, um, you can go to Patreon, patreon.com slash citizen dame, and you can support the show for as little as a dollar. Help us keep the lights on. Uh, as you go up the tiers, you can get access to the shows early, bonus episodes, all kinds of fun stuff. We have um if you just want to send us a couple dollars you don't want to commit that's cool too um that is our ko-fi account ko-fi.com slash and we do have some merch and stuff in our zazzle store zazzle.com slash so so thanks so much for listening for supporting us and um we'll talk to you soon excuse me what
1: happened here? We had the best party. Kanye showed up and dropped like a whole new album.
2: Look around. We got our asses kicked.
1: <laughs> my queen.
0: I'll never serve another. I must end my own life in the most painful
1: way possible.
0: I don't think that she would want you to, you know.
1: Who are you to know what a queen would or wouldn't want? Are you a queen? Well, I mean, to
0: the extent that all women are, yes. But no, no. I'm not a queen.
1: You know what? She is, though, is an agent. Is that a title? It is a title. Maybe the best way to honor the dead is to go on living. Yes. I pledge loyalty eternal to you, Agent M.
0: No, no, no. I'm not interested in a subject.
1: Too late. It's done. I already pledged the loyalty. I wish you'd said no, no, no before. And if you should die before I, I promise to end my own life in the most painful way possible. Yeah, ha. I don't like you.